Crank up the volume and get ready for real-world bird hunting by listening to the Wingman Podcast by Eastman's. Now your host, Todd Helms. Hey guys, this episode of the Wingman Podcast is brought to you by Sitka Gear. And we've been partnered with Sitka for, man, I don't know, four years, five years now? Since the beginning. We've been wearing Sitka Gear and I... Oh man, you guys have heard me talk about Sitka Gear on and off and sing their praises. But... What I wanted to do is explain to you exactly why I'm a believer in Sitka gear and what it's done for me as a waterfowler. First of all, I grew up wearing hand-me-down clothes, wearing that stuff in the 80s and 90s where I was always wet. I was always cold. And so having good, high-quality gear that keeps me in the field until I'm ready to go home is vital and it's just super important and I appreciate it so much. And the folks over at Sitka just build the single best waterfowl clothing on the planet. The fit, the performance, every single piece is exactly is thought out perfectly and it is performance driven. I think back to some of the hunts that we do out here just last season as a matter of fact hunting at 21 below zero uh, on a late season goose and duck hunt, I was able to stay out there long enough in the field that I harvested my dream bird, which was a Drake pintail. That was using Sitka's boreal setup, both the parka, both the jacket and the bibs. That stuff is built for the late season. But there's more to, obviously, Sitka's waterfowl setup than or Sitka's waterfowl system, I should say, than just simply cold weather. I look at the Delta system and it is designed to keep you dry in even in the early season when it's warm and you might be working up a big sweat walking into your spot, that system's going to breathe and it's going to keep you dry from the outside while also ventilating you from the inside. I've seen it on cold days. I've seen this exact thing happen with her when I'm layered up with the Sitka gear. I start with uh, either a synthetic or a mer- or their merino base, and then I put on, a lot of times I'll just put on like a, either a soft shell or a puffy vest, and then either a soft shell or a puffy on top. The Dakota hoodie is one of my favorite pieces, but I've also used some pieces that aren't, are no longer uh, in production, which is a high mountain hoodie, but I've seen the moisture get pulled off my skin through the layers and actually freeze as ice particles and frost particles on the outside of the clothing. Now what that's doing is it's telling me that sweat that I worked up in the morning going into my spot is is getting sucked away from my skin, keeping me warm and keeping me dry and keeping me in the blind hunting birds. Hey guys, welcome to episode 65, don't hold me to that, of the Wingman Podcast. <laughs> Pretty sure it's episode for sixty-five. For a guy whose content is based on counting limits, this really scares me. Yeah. Todd. <laughs> Once it gets over a dozen, <laughs> I'm out. Uh, anyway, as you can see, I have Mr. Scott Reekers on the podcast with me today. Scott, thanks for jumping on. Absolutely. We're just going to sit down and hash out some preseason stuff. Talk about what you've got going on. Maybe revisit some highlights from last season. Um, I leave. Brandon Mason and I leave Saturday. Yep. Today's Thursday. We leave Saturday for Canada. We've talked about that with Ike. Talked Brandon and I talked about that yesterday in yesterday's recording. 
and we're stoked. It's gotten to the point where it's one of those things we where our lists have our to do lists mm-hmm. have shrunk and shrunk and shrunk yep. and shrunk. And I needed. I'm trying to put out a magazine, the latest <laughs> issue of EHJ, the Hunt Camp issue, <clears throat> before I go, and because I'm going to be gone, I'm going to be mm-hmm. in Canada f- when we send to print, which is like. That means I get to do you and Brandon's job. Yeah, it's dude. <laughs> Actually, yours. And it's not that done. I. It's not that I don't trust you, but it's like, and I, I have, I have to trust you, and I have to trust my my copy editors. Yep. You know, you have to be able to lean on other people a little mm-hmm. bit, and. I'm not good at that. Yeah. I'm the I'm the control freak. I'm like, no, I gotta have just a little bit, just a yeah. little bit. Yeah. You want help with the decoys? Nope. Nope. You sure? Nope. Sit there. That that's where that turns into Eat like me, Snickers. Hunter, and Brandon throwing decoys at you while you're arranging them and just it. And it works. And it works. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. It's one of those things where, and I I, I do I, I get a little CDO on that stuff, but whatever. So anyway, we leave we leave Saturday and. We're both jacked, obviously, and, and it, it looks like it's going to be predominantly geese. You know, yep. can, Canada's and speckle bellies, which I, I don't have not killed a speck yet. It's hard in Wyoming. We don't see yeah. very many of them. I, I the first speck I ever killed was here in Wyoming, and yep. it was a fluke, absolute fluke deal. And then I there was a little group of them on the river down mm-hmm. where I used to live. But they were never – they always were, like, in town. Yeah. They, and you never got a crack mm-hmm. at them. But I – other than that, until I went to Oklahoma last year, didn't never killed a speck, just that one. So, we should see Canada's and specs. But, yeah, getting everything dialed mm-hmm. before we go. Tomorrow is going to be a gear day for mm-hmm. me. It's going to be getting everything packed, making sure that all the logistics are in order, and – going from there mm-hmm. but uh you know just managing your workload so you can be gone mm-hmm. for eight days or ten yep. days it's a it's a challenge like i'm gone for two types of trips here hunting wise i work and it's mostly for mostly for mule deer because that's that's my favorite thing and then so that being my favorite that's the one where I haul a camera along and do right. stuff like that right so you know shameless plug there are a couple of episodes out on youtube where we've got the llamas with so that is that takes up most of my september and october but sometimes i get lucky and kill earlier in september then i'm actually here for mm-hmm. the first split yep. and if i'm here for the first split i can i can actually enjoy it because there there are enough local birds here that you can have a couple of good hunts when you do that right then and you get some variety because we've actually had um and they're usually fairly immature birds but we've had wood ducks here Oh yeah, uh, you know, like which oh, yeah. is kind of cool to cool to do because when you think you know Northwest Wyoming, you don't think like wood duck habitat. Right, right. It, it's not what when somebody if somebody came here to hunt, that's not what they would expect to kill. You know, you'd expect to get your mallards and your teal and a, you know, a little bit of variety um, with with that, but that would not be normal to kill a yeah. couple of wood ducks. And there's a reason, you know, our best we say it over and over and over again. Our best duck hunting, our best waterfowl hunting in general is. December, yes. January, and right to the close of the season. Yep. You know, and I've said it for years. I wish they'd give us a 10-day teal season. Yep. Like, right September 1st. Open it September 1st, run it through the 10th, and shut us down until the – I'd be fine with Halloween. Yep. You know, and then run us later into – right even into February. Yep. I would love to see that. Maybe someday it'll happen. There's enough people chirping about it that yeah. – whatever. But let's face it. 
waterfowl doesn't get a lot of uh, airtime yep. in Wyoming. Not we Wyoming. are a big game state. Yep. And rightly so. I mean, we have world-class big game hunting. You know, you're headed out in, what, 15 days? Well, pro- yep. probably about 13 days, yeah, realistically. I'll leave, on, I'll leave on the 14th for my first hunt. Um, my first hunt, this is, this is going to be an odd experience. I'm actually going into a spot with a buddy that I haven't scouted. Um, but I'm, I'm going because there's, there's that a, control thing yes. again. I'd be like, <laughs> well, it's an area I've been into. I know where there's, I, I know where the big deer hang out in there. Um, but I've got a hunt a little bit later planned where I, I have scouted, but it's a, it's a different arrangement. It's, it's who I could go with right. kind of thing. And so, um, the area that I scouted for a little bit later, um, I, I'm hoping the deer will still be there, you know, um, a little bit later in the season. Um, however, it'll be a good hunt. It'll be a fun hunt. I'm excited to I'm excited to go do that because that's the one that that really um, it really tests me because it requires a lot of patience to hunt because the deer are hard horned so their behavior has changed. Right. Um, there's a real chance of weather like because it's it's a little bit later so there's a real chance that I could get dumped on six seven inches of snow. However, if I'm up there when that happens, the deer stick out like sore thumbs when that happens. And so yeah. they, that gives you a strategic advantage, right, but you have to be there right when it happens, when, when, the, when the snow clears. And you have to be looking in places that you know the bucks are at. Right. And you can't do that. Like, you can't just leave here and say, all right, well, I'm going to go hunt. I'm going to go hope because there's snow. You know, and then you're a day and a half late after the right. snow's there. Right. They've already changed their it's behavior. It's almost like you have to weather <clears throat> the storm yep. on the mountain. And then, so when that weather breaks, like the next yep. morning, those deer are going to be up, and they're going to yeah. fe- feed a lot, like probably most of the day. Yep, because they've been bedded down, holed up yep. for however long. And and sometimes, actually, some of the best times, if you, depending on how, depending on your terrain, um, hunting the like Ike likes to call them sucker holes. Whenever you're in the middle of a storm right. where those, there's those right. breaks where you can see for a couple miles again, and so you quick run over, um, they like to come out during those times too, and so. That's a good opportunity to find a buck, um, but we'll see. I mean, we'll we'll see what happens. Um, we're we're sitting in the middle of ninety degree weather right now. Yeah, it's ninety three degrees outside yeah. right now and, and on September first. And we're we're gonna have that for the next <coughs> week, and then it's then it dramatically drops by about thirty degrees. So I'm I'm kind of fully expecting that there's gonna be a lot of reports that the Labor Day weekend was pretty pretty worthless as far as elk yeah. activity goes. Um, but by around mid, um, mid September, it'll probably be good for the rut. And then when I'm actually deer hunting, it'll be pretty good for us as far as temperature wise, but we'll see. I've, I've seen it warm way up at the tail end of September too. Get those Indian summer days. Yeah. So it's, you never know what you're going to get. Um, last year it was ridiculous dry. And this year when I went scouting in, in a couple of places, the grass was actually up to my knees yeah. on top. And Which so, up to fantastic. Scott's knees is like up to my waist. So if you can't tell sitting here, he's like 6'5". So I, like when I need stuff heavy, hauled a long ways, like sleds full of decoys, I'm like, hey, mule man, come <laughs> over here. See, well, here, here's actually like I haven't told you this. Like I've I've jokingly called you like your build is kind of gorilla esque. Yeah. I'm actually kind of Sasquatch. Yeah, you are. You are. You <laughs> so. got that length. You got that length. <laughs> little silver back over here, and then you got the old nor- the old skunk ape sitting over here on the <laughs> other side. <laughs> <laughs> we we give each other a lot of crap around the office, as you can tell. Um, yeah, well, dude, that's super cool. That's something that I've I've done a couple times. I've done the high country deer thing. 
But we talk a lot, and I know whenever we get on the Wingman podcast and I get guys from the office in, the talk invariably leans more t- a little toward big game. Yeah. And that's okay. That's Eastman's is our parent company. Mm-hmm. We're under that umbrella. We're ob- we, we love to hunt just about everything. Yep. But we've had the conversation, we joke around the office, that you're either a deer guy. And when I say deer, I'm talking yeah. mule deer. Mule deer. You're either a deer guy or you're an elk guy. Yep. You're a mule deer guy. You are got bit through. by that bug through and through. Through it's and like through. you kind of be like eh, elk, whatever. And I'm the opposite. And so while you're up with a rifle in the in the deer woods mm-hmm. in September, I'm at seven thousand feet chasing screaming bulls with my bow. <laughs> I'm taking <clears throat> you with me deer hunting some year. It would be fun. I like I said, I've done it. I've done it once, one fall. I made a couple trips into the area over kind of mm-hmm. where close to where you are. I had a lot of fun. I was solo. I didn't kill a buck. I had opportunities. I let lots of deer walk. Then I'm like, nah, mm-hmm. nah, nah. And it's it's cool, but I'm like, man, that's three days of elk hunting that I'm not going to get back. <laughs> yeah. So, well, here's a, here's a funny story. Yesterday, I recorded a podcast, the Deer Eater podcast, with um, one of our one of our really good friends from the industry. His name's Josh Kinzer, and then his buddy um, that he records the Deer Eater How podcast. Is Josh? He's doing good. Yeah. So he, he's. I heard he's, a few more stories on that thing. He he is a storytelling extraordinaire. Yes. Yes. With monkey stories? Oh, <laughs> my gosh. Yeah. I've never laughed that hard at someone that I barely knew mm-hmm. in my entire life. Yep. Absolutely. And so I said this on the air or on that podcast, um, and I know as soon as a few people from the office are going to uh, make fun of me, and I'm just going to double down on it just since to make sure it gets heard, I think rut-crazed elk are stupid. They can be. I, I, I honestly think that. I think more bull elk get saved by cows because of proximity to, to the, the wary ones are the cows. And I chased so many of them. And then the other piece of the equation, like when I got – why I got the mule deer bug was I have killed a lot of elk. And to, like, it just – because I'd killed so many, I wanted to take that that next step, mm-hmm. so to speak, as far as being selective. I'll have I'll have a three year relationship with many of these bucks. Yeah, you spend a lot of time, so. man. You go you you just got back from your scouting <laughs> mission up there, and you'll see bucks year after year after yep. year that you're and and the whitetail guys get this. You yep. guys that live that are listening to this podcast that, are, that live not in the west. You, 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 they get it. My brother in Iowa, man, he watches, he watches whitetails grow up. Yep. You know, from the time they're two year olds. So he's like, ah, he's, he's got a lot of potential. Then at three, four, five, six, and you do the same thing with mule deer because they go back to the same places year in and year out. And uh, a mule deer's, (coughs) mule deer's uh, high country habitat is my, on the low end, about one square mile, like in the summer. And, you know, plug our migration film. You can follow. You can fo- They follow this green wave, and they stay stay connected to their food source for the whole like as long as they possibly can. And so they're constantly eating on the edge of the best growing, the best growing food. And so that's how they end up in the high country. That's how they end up in those rugged places. Is the last place to grow and retain. A lot of people don't don't realize this is even into September and October you can have green ups. So like what you're talking about that Indian summer quote unquote is that 
you can get snow mm-hmm. and then it'll melt off really fast greens up. and that the stuff especially around the cliffs it greens up yep. one last time yep. and because of that that's where those animals will hang out mm-hmm. and they have their hiding areas they use the moon um, but i'll i'll scout those animals and i'll get a three-year relationship with them mm-hmm. and so you know i may not ki- obviously i'm not gonna, going to kill all those bucks that i've been been watching but I found two this year that I'm paying attention to for the next two years. Sure. You know, th- they were definitely young bucks. They have, um, they have a lot of potential to, to grow. They're both, um, they're both typical frames, um, you know, four by fours, but they're, they're young bucks. They're, they're three and a half, four and a half. And so they've got young, they've got time to grow a, a mature mule deer buck, like, like a legitimate mule deer buck that is, that's big usually is at least five. Yeah, and you can occasionally get a four-year-old that'll be in that one seventies, but a lot of guys don't have a trigger control. I didn't when right. I was younger, not right. to shoot a one seventy. But you want to get into that next phase, like that, just that impressive phase, and that's hard to get to, to get where they just actually really impress you. And so it's a long, it's a long-term relationship um, with that with the country. Um, I know a lot of guys who, who also they um, they hotspot. Oh man, it sounded like it was good over there last year. We should go in there. Well, mm-hmm. I never get to know certain areas. You know, the better you get to know, uh, like I've, I've probably got ten areas that I could go at any given point and find deer, and and but that comes from living living here, knowing it, and really getting to understand all those areas. And if I was really honest, like I I could probably narrow that down to about five that I would say, okay, those are the ones I'll concentrate yeah. on. Well, I've, I've seen you pull up your Onyx app, mm-hmm. and it's just like waypoint, waypoint, waypoint. Mm-hmm. And there's little clusters of them. Yep. Then it's like there's a whole lot of country in the middle with nothing, yep. with nothing, and then there's little clusters. Mm-hmm. And mine looks similar for my elk stuff, but anyway, the, the migration you were talking about, it is the exact same thing with waterfowl. Yep. They're not migrating in elevation mm-hmm. like our mountain animals do, but they're still following a food source. Yep. And ge- Canada geese, Canada geese and mallards, yep. especially, they will only go as far south as they absolutely have to. They they don't like it any further south. Well, it's one of those things where why would you expend? And I'm giving, I'm giving a bird with a brain that big a, a ton of credit, but why would you expend that energy? Yeah. They're pre-programmed. They are created to not expend energy. Yep. Expend the least amount of energy, get the ma- maximum yield, right? Yep. We are we're lucky here because and I saw it last year in Oklahoma, if if we don't get the weather and by we I mean the western provinces of Canada, Montana, Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, yep. if we don't get hard hard weather, we winter birds like crazy. Yep. The Yellowstone, mm-hmm. all the tributaries of the Yellowstone, these big western rivers, they hold, and they've historically held waterfowl. Yep. But now with agriculture in the river bottoms. Yep. There's no reason to leave. There's zero reason to leave. And, and we, we only see those birds push south further. Yep. And I'm not, and not all of them stay here, obviously, because you go to the Denver area. Yep. The Rocky Mountain front. And my gosh, there. there are there are tens of thousands of, of geese and ducks that winter there all the way down into Oklahoma mm-hmm. and in Texas. They do, they, they keep going, but these big, I guess these 
larger subspecies of Canada geese. Yep. That's what we have. Yep. And that's what that's what stay and are starting more and more of them are staying all year round. Yeah. They don't leave. There's no reason. No, to. no. And so, if we don't have weather, the birds are hung up in Montana. Yep. And they're shooting them up, and we're whining. If the provinces, the western provinces, Alberta and Saskatchewan don't have weather, the birds are up there. Yep. And we're and Montana's whining, and of course Wyoming's really whining. Then. Yep. Nebraska, the you know everybody, it's all part of that. But those birds follow that front of that food, yeah. and it, and it's so weather dependent because. As long as they have moving open water and food, they're fine. Yep. And what we get here is we'll get big snows sometimes the end of the season, January, early February, and we'll still have open water. Yep. But the birds can't get feed mm-hmm. because the, there there's a foot or two of snow on the ground. Yep. And they ge- geese can't get down through that, yep. and ducks really can't. So the ducks they're gone. They're gone. And. Du- you'll have some ducks that stay on the on the rivers, yeah. <clears throat> on the open water because they can they feed pretty easily, mm-hmm. much more so than geese do. But it's amazing to me when we start talking about migrations, whether it's mule deer or whether it's antelope or whether it's waterfowl or even elk on the Yellowstone front. Yeah, it's it's all for the same reason. It's all for the same reason. It's for weather and f- and feed. And it's it's amazing to me when you look at the big big picture of it, how closely it's all tied together, yep. and how a mule deer guy like you can apply those same exact principles from the mule deer migration to waterfowl. It's just food. It's just where where is that where is that food going to be, and where do they want to be when they're not eating? Right. It, it, if you apply that to just about any animal, outside of the rut. Like once they're rutting, you can throw those things out, and you may as well just chase, like. With elk, this is this is funny. Like a lot of See, guys. I want to get back to your derogatory statement about stupid bull elk. <laughs> let's get, let's revisit that. <laughs> okay, so here here is what I here is what I mean. Um, elk are herd animals, mm-hmm. so their survival is based on safety of the group, and so they are elk are very reactive in the way that they in the way that they behave. So, for instance, there are a lot of bull elk that have died because they have one stupid raghorn in their group that takes off, that gets flighty and takes off. So I and then they all tend to run the same way. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes they like once they get into that flighty mood as a herd, the chaos ensues. And but. The reason that chaos ensues is because when they were created, they were designed to fend off wolves. Mm-hmm. And so that chaos throws the wolves off because what happens is they have to be able to isolate and target a single An animal. Individual animal. Yes. Right. And so if there is chaos going on, a, a wolf knows that it'll get trampled by that entire herd. And so they can't isolate. Well, for me as a as a hunter when you look at the behavior of elk and think about our seasons the vast majority and I'll I'll throw in one caveat the vast majority of our hunting seasons including our rifle seasons run at some phase of the rut when bull elk are at their stupidest and so with the exception of our later season hunts and so when you look at the very latest season, sometimes you will see a, a big mature bull elk. He'll behave 
like a mule deer. Exactly. And I was. So, I'm glad you. I'm glad you started talking about that because it's almost like their their life cycles are reversed. Yep. When mule deer, because I mean, let's face it, if you could hunt mule deer with a rifle right now, you'd extirpate your, yeah, your mature birds because be no they're they're e- they're easy to find. Yep. But once they go hard horn, that changes completely. They turn into the gray ghost, right? Uh-huh. Everybody knows that October is the hardest time to yep. kill a big mule deer. Just like late November, late in mid October to about first part of November is the hardest time to kill a big bull yeah. elk. They they flip flop, and it's because of their life cycles. I, I'll say this though: I do know a couple outfitters who love to kill big bull elk October fifteenth to October twenty fifth. They've because got they've got a second cycles. Yeah, they're looking for second cycle cows, or they've found a honey hole where they know those big bulls go, because they. Guy Eastman said it the best for elk that I have ever heard anybody say it. When you're a mature bull elk, and by mature I mean eight to ten years old, yep. you're you're the big dog. Yep. You're you're at your physical prime. You've survived a bunch of hunting seasons. You've survived in our in our neck of the woods. You've survived wolves and grizzly bears and mountain lions and whatever, all kinds of predation. You've got something figured out if you've mm-hmm. lived that long as a bull elk. Same with a mule deer buck. Yep. They've got it. They've got it figured out. They're habitual, and they will continue to do the same exact thing that's keep that's kept them alive yep. for that period of time. So somebody like that has something figured out where he's like, they always go here. Yep. They, this is a safe spot because when those back to the point of what I was making about guy, the elk rut is chaos. Yep. More than any other ungulate, mm-hmm. whitetails come close. Yep. But the elk rut is chaos. But I think whitetail's window of chaos is shorter. Regionally, it's shorter. Man, I don't know. I don't know. I'd say they're about the same. Really? Yeah, because you get second cycle whitetail does all the way into oh, December. And so those deer are always in the breeding stage from about the end of October in our in our area, from about the end of October into the first part of December. Yeah. It's about the same for elk. It's you're looking at middle of September into middle of October, really. And so anyway, what Guy said was, for a big mature bull elk, mm-hmm. he's going so hard, he's going to breed for about a two-week window. He's got it figured out. That's all he's going to do. He's going to hang on the periphery, let the young guys g- round up all the cows, mm-hmm. and then he's going to be like, oh, that's cute. Thanks for doing my work for me, fellas. And he's going to wade in and take yep. what he wants. He's going to breed a bunch of cows, and it's going to be chaos for two weeks. And then he's going to go disappear. Yep. And he's going to go into some hellhole someplace where the sun barely shines, and he's going to sleep, and he's going to drink. He's not even hardly going to eat much. And Guy equated it to this. Imagine going to Las Vegas and partying your (laughs) ass off for, for a week straight. Loud music. You know, mm-hmm. the noise levels up here, that's the elk rut. Yeah. Noise levels up here. You're constantly running around. You're not sleeping. You're not eating. You're just partying. That's a bull elk in that in that time frame, a mature bull especially. And when that's over, what would you want to do? <laughs> just come home and hide in a closet where it's dark yeah. and drink cold, ice cold water and just recover. You know, I just want to <laughs> sleep for like a week. That's what these bulls do. And they disappear because yeah. of that. So outfitters like that have got you know, have something figured out where it's like there's this little pocket and it's usually just nasty whether yep. it's thick timber nasty high oh, yeah. alpine gross stuff. Um, it's just interesting. 
but this is the dynamic between mule deer guys and elk guys. <laughs> it's a constant I won't even say give and take. It's a constant battle. Mine's better. No, mine's better, you know. And the because I have seen the first time I was really exposed to a a really good concentration of mule deer because growing up in the upper Midwest, we didn't have mule yeah. deer. Was when I moved. I lived in Sheridan, Wyoming. Yep. And the mule deer season there runs October fifteenth through like Halloween, and then yep. it's done. It's a fifteen it's day short. window, and it's that's a hard time of year to kill a big buck. Yep. Really hard time. They don't spend a lot of time in the out in the daylight. Really hard time of year to kill a big buck. They're staging for the rut, which means they're in the black timber a lot. Right. They're right on the edge. They're in those. Yeah. And out east, in in if you're in the mountains, if you're out in the badlandsy country, and I'm getting to that point, is they're in those they're in those wild plum thickets. You can't glass them because they're buried in 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 cover. The revelation was when pheasant season opened. In November. Yep. And I'd go out early in the morning to go hunt pheasants on, I worked four days a week. Yeah. On four, a four day shift at that time. So I'd hunt every Friday and Saturday. And I was out. I wanted to be the first one out, you know. Yep. Buck crack of dawn, grab Mackinac, go. So I'm driving these country road, these, these ranch roads through mm-hmm. this. It's really good mule deer country over there. Yes. It, it really is. <clears throat> it's just that season and it's, private property on purpose yep and it's private property so there's not a lot of access to them but man there's some big deer there and i didn't realize that until pheasant season and i'm driving around er in the early morning and there are whopper muleys everywhere you looked chasing does and you want to talk about dumb Mm -hmm. i mean stand there and look at the truck and like oh yeah you could walk up and spear them i think you know i was like Mm -hmm. it was unreal well, so there, it's just di- it's just a different thing. But I'll I'll say this. I personally I think well <laughs> let me I I'll put this out there like this. And then part of it is again is that herd animal dynamic like the way they operate in herds. Right. There are big bucks on the mule deer winter range that are never seen, but they're seen every year in the high country. Right. And the reason for that is they avoid the pressure, whereas elk will move as a unit. So let's use, let's use Brutus as an example. And maybe we can, you can make the argument maybe that Jackson doesn't count, but remember Brutus, the, the elk? Grounds, yeah. I was, saw, I saw him in person. He's um, most he impressive bull I've ever seen. Unreal. And so, but the point that I'm making is because of how they have that herd dynamic, that big herd dynamic, whereas mule deer don't, they're allowed they're allowed to think. And so, like, for instance, there's a video on social media right now of a 180, 185-type mule deer buck, and he's laying in a piece of grass. And the horse guys And the horse past guys him. walk right past him. Yep. And actually, if you go back and read a, a, a story that's, that was in the magazine – um, a friend of mine, Matt, he was involved in, he didn't, he didn't pull the trigger. His buddy did. I think his, Bobby was his buddy's name, but Bobby killed this buck that they'd nicknamed Frazier. They had been hunting him all season. Frazier stood still while horse guys, horse guys, outfitters rode right by him. Mm-hmm. And he was almost a 200 inch deer. Wow. You know? And so, um, Matt and Bobby watched from above and then Bobby went down and killed him. And so, and this is a hard horned buck. This wasn't just a, um, this wasn't just like a, you know, a velvet buck that was 
you know, right. like that was being stupid. This was like late in the general season in Wyoming, and he just held still. Yeah, he understood that if he held still, which to me, you and I've had this conversation in the blind, where when when we th- like. <sighs> Unless it's like one of those crazy, crazy times like what we had last year with that giant wad of ducks, mm-hmm. like unless it's one of those giant wads of ducks, like geese, I think behave a lot more or have more in common with the way they group think, like elk and mallards probably do a little bit more with mule deer because a lot of times mallards come in in groups of three or four. What do you find with mule deer? Three well, or four, and it's right. what they eat. Too. Well, that's part of it. The other part of it that's unique about mallards at the time of year when we're hunting them, they're pair bonding. Yeah, and so you you'll if you look at those threes, for example. Yeah, it'll be one hen and three drakes, or yep. two two drakes, mm-hmm. or one hen and th- two, three or four drakes. Those small groups, they're chasing her around. They're they're trying to pair bond is what they're doing, and so it's a little bit different. But I I, I definitely see where your where your head's at. And but I like shooting mallards better than geese. <clears throat> personally i do too um and it's honestly i think that comes from a childhood of the formative years of we had geese out our wazoo yeah and we had and ducks were like we hunted ducks and we killed ducks but we didn't have lots and lots of ducks yeah. and so i can count on one hand from the time i was 12 years old and could start hunting to college the number of just absolute rain out duck days yeah where we had just clouds and clouds of, wa- yep. of, of ducks now it's a little bit different we have um we're we're blessed we have really good duck hunting obviously some days are better than others but we had a day last year that and i'm I, we took ike and his daughter out mm-hmm. you were on yep. the, you were on, on this that. hunt because ike and i were talking yesterday about how we were trying to find enough Sitka gear that would actually fit her to get her <laughs> in, it into it. It was a challenge. You know, and but that hunt in particular, Dan Picard filmed. I think Luke filmed. Luke Washington filmed a little bit too. That hunt in particular was if we would have shot better, yeah. we could have killed our 30 Drake Mallards in probably 15 or 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And if and if we would have been on in a situation because the river really limits how many birds you can shoot yes. at one time, because you can't we can in the spot that that particular spot you can kind of help the dogs by waiting a little bit but not much, so it's two or three birds max, mm-hmm. knock them and down and then and then the dogs are busting their butts to try to mop them up. It's going to be nice having a third dog, even with Hondo being that young. This year we'll we'll see how that dynamics. We got to bring Ace and Hondo out at the same time, see if they can even they'll be, <laughs> do it. They'll but. be fine. They'll be fine. It's one of those deals where we just hunt them. We'll hunt them just like we hunt Mac mm-hmm. and and Ace, where we're on opposite ends. Yep. And I'm gonna I'm gonna be doing a lot of dog control this mm-hmm. year with that young dog. I'm gonna be not probably not pulling the trigger near as much. And <laughs> no pressure, Scott, to get killed. No <clears throat> yeah, pressure. That's kind of where I was headed with that. But hope you've been practicing. You better grab one of these savage renegades. I've actually got to go spend some time. We've got a skeet shoot. Like I'm, I'm involved in a, in a college ministry here, and we do a skeet shooting day. So right. I'm definitely going to bring that. Yeah, bring that take out one of these renegades and break it in. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know we've got more coming. 
Um, we got these two mm -hmm. that Brandon and I are going to take to Canada. And so far, I've been really impressed with that Renegade. It's it's been, and I'm, I'm nice looking shotgun. forward. I'm looking forward to putting it through the paces. But I've shot enough semi-autos over the years. I know what a good one mm -hmm. is made of, and I this is going to be a great show. It's going to be great gun. Interesting to me. I think you were with me at shot when we pulled this thing apart. Yeah. And the way the the way the gas system works was was quite a bit different. Like they actually thought outside. It's a of new the box. take. Yeah. It's so. it's a new take, and it's a little bit outside the box. There's some things. Typical Savage, man. You, you look at this, and even if it wasn't branded a Savage, mm -hmm. you'd go, I think that's a Savage. Yep. You know, you look at the stock yep. configuration. I love how it's completely adjustable, mm -hmm. and it comes with all kinds of different cheek pieces and combs, and you can adjust length of pull. You can yep. adjust comb height. You can do can't, uh, you know, all, all different kinds of stuff. Yep. But I've never seen a shotgun with a fluted barrel. I don't yeah. – I don't – I don't know if it serves a real purpose other than it's appealing. Yeah. To look at it, it's like, that's super cool. Now, fluting does increase the rigidity yeah. of your barrel. In a, in a rifle, that's important. Yeah. super important. Um, but fluting also increases your surface area. So what – if I had to guess the thought process behind that design, because I haven't talked to anybody at yeah. Savage about this, but in high-volume – Shooting situations. I think today's opening day of dove season. Those guys yep. in Texas are burning millions of rounds. Insanity. Today. Yeah, it is. We don't have that here. No. But <clears throat> guys do. In high-volume shooting situations where your gun's smoking hot, that fluting is going to help that yep. barrel cool, which not as big of an issue in a shotgun as it is in a rifle. Because yeah. we're talking uh, in a rifle that heat does – nasty things to your accuracy shotgun not so much but it'll ex in like i said I, I would i would have to imagine that, that extra cooling is going to help extend that barrel life yep you know and you're not going to shoot out the barrel of a shotgun it doesn't work that way yeah. but it just yeah and it like i said it looks cool it's a cool yeah. looking shotgun and i've been super impressed so far i'm excited to get it up there we're going to take uh you know we're going to be shooting federal ammunition like we always do and I think I'm just going to go with the tried and true Black Cloud, three inch, <laughs> three inch, yep. three inch twos. The what? I, what I'm going to go? What I'm going to go and get and make sure that I have enough of it to last me for the season. Hey guys, going to take pause for a minute and bring you a word from our sponsors. Hey guys, you've heard me talk about my favorite roast from Black Ruffle Coffee being the Just Black. Well, I've also got a favor, another favorite for when I don't have time to brew a pot of coffee, or I want something a little sweeter, or or later in the day, and I want a cold coffee, an iced coffee, and that's the ready-to-drink coffees from Black Rifle. I really like the 300 series. I am a caffeine junkie. Probably not good for me. My doctor's probably cringing listening to this right now, but 300 milligrams of caffeine just fuels my fire, gets me going, gives me that edge I need to continue on throughout my day at that top level. Plus, man, those 300s just taste so good. There's the there's the rich mocha flavor. There's the vanilla flavor. Both of them are phenomenal. And you could find them all over the place. You know, that's a cool thing about Black Rifle is it's, it's getting to be pretty mainstream. And even in our little neck of the mountains out here in Wyoming, I can go to the hardware store and get Black Ruffle coffee. I can go to my grocery store and get Black Ruffle coffee. I can go to the local gas station and get it when I fill up. 
those ready-to-drink cans, man, I walk in, I grab two or three of them, I throw them in a cooler full of ice, and midday, pop one, and I'm ready to go for the rest of the day. And it's that, just that smooth, icy refreshment. Man, it's so good. If you like iced coffee, do yourself a favor and check out Black Riffle Coffee's ready-to-drink coffees in a can. Like I said, you can get them all over the place. You can even order them online. And especially my my vote is the 300 series, uh, 300 milligrams of caffeine. Just if you're an energy drink guy or person, I should say, you're probably consuming a, too much caffeine anyway. So why not take it up a notch anyway and go all the way to 300? Just do it. Anyway, Black Rifle Coffee, thank you for sponsoring today's podcast. And guys, check them out. You can go online. You can order it there. Get a, you can get a Black Ruffle Coffee membership, get decals, whatever. There's a cool company, cool product, great group of people, and it's veteran-owned USA, baby. Check it out, blackriflecoffee.com. Thanks, thanks again, guys, for sponsoring today's episode. Yeah, I, I, yeah, no kidding. Anyway, it's we've been all over the place with this. The last three episodes have been rabbit trails galore. It's been ridiculous. I'm okay with that. They're actually more entertaining that way. Well, you and I got off on the big, on the big game tangent and you can tell, and I think probably a lot of guys listening to this, they're big game hunters too. They might be whitetail guys and I'm not, I'm not putting you down because I grew up a whitetail guy and I still have a soft spot in my heart for whitetails. It just so happens that November here is the time when I can actually get away and yeah. what's, what's available in November yeah. out west? Whitetails. Mm-hmm. So I go and hunt whitetails, and I have a really good time doing well, that. Well, I'll probably be going with you if I don't get <coughs> a mule deer this year. But Not it, this year because I have a mule deer oh tag. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> I have a glorious <laughs> mule deer tag. Well, I'll, I'll, sign a, uh, I'll sign a confidentiality <laughs> agreement, and I'll go over to the Black Hills, and you know, maybe I'll don't shoot even one say of your Don't even say those words. <laughs> don't even say those I words. I didn't say what state. No, it's uh, <laughs> go to South Dakota. It's loaded with whitetails. Yes, it is. Anyway, <laughs> good grief! Uh, Back to the dogs. I know you've been, I know you've been working with Ace, and we give you a lot of grief about Ace because he's, you've had your, he's you've, a meathead. You've had your trials. It with took that two dog. years. Yeah, it took two years to get him quote unquote solid. But part of it was me understanding who he is, and this would drive some like this would drive like some of the old school guys nuts. But like, we're on a river, so like you can see in the in video we just did a we did a review on some uh, some product and you can see that he will go straight into the water when it is not moving like and there is no issue with drive when it is not moving however his confidence is diminished on a river and so what i have to do as his handler is number one if i know i'm going to hunt a spot during the year so this is local if i know i'm going to hunt a new spot i have to take him there beforehand like i have to work him in that spot so he understands a couple of things. First and foremost, where he's at. <coughs> Second is where he likes to get in or get out. Right. It, it, for him, that he is confident if he knows where he can go in and go out and understands that. And then, then the other piece of that equation is me just being positive with him and not getting frustrated because if I get frustrated, he shuts he gets, down. Yeah, he shuts I've down. And so I can't do that. I have to just be positive with him. And now that. But that's every – I think that's every dog. Every dog has their personality. Mm-hmm. An immense amount of drive helps on a river. Right. Like, I know 
my next lab will be from a bloodline that hunts on rivers regularly. You know, that's 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 going to be one of those differences. And I'll even say this: what probably separates, as far as western western waterfowl dogs, what separates them is going to be their their take on rivers because rivers are what is open for a lot of Mm -hmm. us here out west Mm -hmm. and so that drive level and that confidence um is good the next my next level of training with with a pup is going to i'm definitely going to get it at a different time of year um i I think there were some confidence issues that came because he came with me to the blind um just like what happens but he did fall in once when it was cold Mm -hmm. and so that may have had an effect on him as a young dog like real young puppy several months old um because you know you saw him that one field hunt that we did where he just Mm -hmm. he just went out and just mauled that goose brought Mm -hmm. it back and was thrilled he loves birds yeah he loves birds you know he doesn't have I wouldn't say he has the highest prey drive. You know, no. I look at uh, – and, and that and that's breeding. You know, that, yeah. that's where your breeding comes in, where you're – you didn't get to pick him. No. He was a gift mm-hmm. to you. And you've – I think, personally, I think you've maximized his potential. Probably. I really do. And he he goes out. He gets birds. He's not going to win any field trials. He's But he, at the end of the day, if he can bring you that, that bird – Yeah. Great. I had I did a podcast. It's oh, episode 60, 60, 59 maybe with um, Marty Roberts mm-hmm. of Sporting Life Kennels. And it was it was I, I like getting lots of different perspectives. Obviously, we've been hand in glove with Southern Oak Kennels, yeah. and Barton Ramsey and Corey Wages and those guys. And it's been a great, great experience. And they great, great guys. But every every dog breeder, every every dog guy professional has a different take yeah. a little bit different take they're gonna they're probably gonna agree on some foundational principles yep. but beyond that everybody's got a little bit yeah. different it's like it's like teachers mm-hmm. when i was a teacher you'd get a room full of english teachers in the summertime working on standardized tests and we all agreed on basic ground rules but then we all had our opinions that mm-hmm. fit into that as well. Same thing with dog trainers. Yep. And so I had a really good conversation with Marty, and we talked about the difference between meat dogs and field trial dogs. Oh, yeah. You know, and hunt test dogs. Mm-hmm. I personally do not have the luxury at this point in my life to hunt test my dogs. Our hunt tests and hunt, club, hunt test clubs are very few and far between yep. in the West. They're a long ways. I am. We are both family men. Mm-hmm. You have four little ones. I have three. My family takes precedence over yeah. my dog. And I'm not going to drive to no. Missoula to yep. go visit to go train with Chad Carmen once a week. It's yep. not going to happen. Not happen. And so, if I still lived in Michigan, or I lived someplace with more population and more access to that, I would absolutely hunt test Hondo. Mm-hmm. I would have hunt tested Mackinac. Why? Because it's fun. Yep. It's something cool to do with your dog. It's for me. It's not necessarily this bragging. Oh, I can, my dog this kind of ribbon and meh, meh, meh. it's like good for you. I think you're. I think you care more about that than the dog yep. does. It's it's just fun to the it's dog. It's fun. If, it gives your dog something to do. It, right. it gives you a goal. You know, it, it's it's a neat thing. And I'm yeah. not. I am not putting down the hunt test guys in yep. any stretch. I admire. I look at I look at the guys in Casper at Boomtown 
um, and I had them on the podcast early on, they just posted, one of them posted on Instagram their, the course that they were running. Yeah. And it was, you know, what was it? Eight retrieves? Eight retrieves. And it had, the last retrieve was like a 450-yard blind. Yeah. Blind. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't run that with Mackinac. I probably yeah. never be able to run that with Hondo. Yep. Why? I don't have I, a 450-yard blind. It's like, okay, if that's if there's a goose that's coasted 500 yards out into a field or a duck, and I know it's out there, I can send them. Yep. And they're Mackinac especially is probably going to go, but I'm relying very much on his prey drive to yeah. get him there. He's probably he's probably not going to be real controllable. And that's one of the things yep. where I'm at with Hondo at this point where I don't have as much control as I would like to have yep. of being able to stop him and direct him. I'm relying yep. on his nose. So how do I compensate for that with a meat dog? Getting back to the Marty Roberts yep. discussion. I have to I have to be more it, it's more of a team. Yeah. It's more of a team where I if I know there's a bird that's gone down in an area, I'm going to walk my dog over there yeah. and get them close and then let their nose do the work. Yep. I think a lot of guys, I think a lot more guys do that than don't do that. It's you cool. To, to, dude, it's cool to line out a dog and send him for a, a half a mile. That's super cool if you can do that. In reality, the amount of time and effort that it yep. takes to get there, I'm probably not going to invest that. Yep. And that's okay with me. You have to know where what you're cool with. I this is this is my personal with where I'm at, and lots of dog guys probably like, oh, that's minimal. But if I can get when I can get Ace across the river multiple times mm-hmm. trying to find a bird, like which I which can, he did for now. the first time last year. So he crossed. And this was pivotal for me, and I said it on camera. Yeah. I said this is a pivotal moment. Because the bird, the mallard was mm-hmm. was crippled, and it was right against the bank. Yep. And Ace kind of knew there was a bird, and you were encouraging yep. him to go across. But you could see by his body language that he's like, "I don't, I'm not I sure don't, what I'm going I don't after know yet. what I'm doing." And then the bird like flapped and got out on the bank, and he Ace could it. see it. And it was like the Wind light was bulb. Oh yeah, and the, but the light bulb came on, mm-hmm. and he went, "Oh, I got to go across the river when Dad tells me back." The and the funny part was the. Uh, the I can't remember whether it was first split, like when my brother-in-law got to come up, um, but I think it was a hunt before that. I got him across on that other spot I go mm-hmm. to. Um, I got mm-hmm. him across, and he got a teal underneath. Like, he found it. So that was the first one you got to see. That one, The one that you got to see was harder, I, I think, like for him to recognize because he saw the teal land in there, and he was working it, but he just uh, couldn't he figure out. It. Yeah, he, he couldn't it. figure out where the – like, but the part where that he couldn't figure out was how to get his head under this log. Mm-hmm. And so I was about to cross the river to get over to help him because I was afraid he was going to go under because the current was going enough. Sure. Um, but he figured it out, went around the other side, and he, he's a 90-pound dog, so he pushed the log out of the way is what he ended he up is, doing. He's like the – Arnold Schwarzenegger of labs, <laughs> dude. Yes. You look at you look at videos of that dog, and like you said, he's a big dumb machine, right? Mm-hmm. But he is a freaking physical specimen of a lab. Just he is. holy smokes! He, and he, he's he's ripped out. He's got giant paws. He's a strong swimmer when he wants to be, and so if 
like I've gotten him across and I've gotten him to go up and back. And so, but the hard part is keeping that control. I can get him to, I can get him to sit on command with help, of, with help of a shot caller. So I'll, I'll give him the beep. Get his and, attention. Yep. Get his yep. attention. He needs, he's a very, um, that sound is big for him. But when I, when I sent him to Bo um, for that six week stint, Bo used a collar. We talked about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And so my, well, and I used it, I used it early for like house training and things like that. No, you don't get on the couch. He got a beep. I understood that at a very yep. early. So tone, tone comes first and then the little bit yep. of a nip comes after yep. that. And progressively up. Yeah. yeah. It, people, you know, that's another thing that Marty and I talked about because so many of the British lab crowd or traditional dog training crowd is anti-collar, mm-hmm. anti-e-collar, anti-e-collar. I, I bought an e-collar the other day mm-hmm. for Hondo. Well, he's bigger than Mac, isn't he? Oh, yeah. I've got a theory on that. Yeah. Um, he's also got more he's, – he's, he's wired different. Yeah. He's wired a little hotter than Mackinac. Mackinac has always – he's freaking smart. Yeah. Mackinac's super smart. Very smart. And he – what – the byproduct of that smartness is a sense of self-preservation. Yep. That Hondo does not possess. Mm-hmm. Hondo goes pell-mell. Part of it is he's still a pup. Yep. But he goes pell-mell into situations that Mackinac stops and thinks through. Yep. You can see him. He's always done it. <laughs> ice is that dog's kryptonite. And not talking floating ice. I'm talking ice shelves. Yep. He, he doesn't like to jump off of things. He never has. See, Ace doesn't like to jump off of things yep. either. And, and Hondo, look out. Well, he's going to Superman off that thing. He just he's going to go. So the back to the e-collar thing. And like I said, there's going to be people that are listening to this that automatically tune me out when I say e-collar. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. That's your that's your opinion. Reference. I I bought the e-collar because I needed to be able to get Hondo's control, to get control of him mm-hmm. at distance. Yep. Whether it's for behavioral purposes, for safety reasons, yep. or I need to stop him yep. and direct him with a hand signal. We're still working on that. But his prey drive, we, we breed these dogs with such strong prey drives, <clears throat> it is hard to shut it off. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably n- not going to go out, you know, re- retrieve refusal is basically what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Want to get that dog? Like you don't get the retrieve if yep. you don't if you don't do it right. That means without an e collar, <clears throat> I'm going to walk out there and get my dog 300 yards away and walk back and do it again. Now, if I'm a dog trainer and I have that's my job, and I am that's what I'm doing for hours at a time. Mm-hmm. Great, dude. I got 15, 20 minutes yep. after work. That the yep. ki- I, I go home, I grab the dogs, I kiss the wife, I maybe eat dinner with the kids, and then I'm off until it gets dark to go train dogs, to go work with Hondo, or it's first thing in the morning before mm-hmm. work. We work 10-hour days. Yep. And so it's like I don't have a lot of free time to put into – basically what I'm getting at is I need to be able to maximize my results, yep. my efficacy in the field. I've exhausted the backyard. Because it's like, I can only do so much back there. And when he's in that yep. controlled environment, dude, he is a machine. It's his, it's his play area, though, too. Yeah. And that's, that's the hardest part about There's backyards. no distractions in the backyard. Yeah. It's not the real world. It's not the real world. It's like 
living in a vacuum or living in a bubble and then you step outside and you're overwhelmed. That's what it's the same thing with training a dog. They're not going to necessarily extrapolate, oh, I have to do this and they can do it across a variety of conditions and situations. They have to learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. And so taking them different places and putting them in different situations, fine. Um, I can tell you right now, and make a prediction, I'm not going to have any issues with Hondo marking birds and going on single retrieves that he can see. Yeah. he's. I've been in the river with him all summer long, and he is money. He's going to struggle with a mark that's downstream of him. Yep. And because of the current is no longer there, mm-hmm. he's going to go to that spot that he marked, and that bird's going to be 30 yards further downstream. Mackinac did the same thing. It's yep. a learning curve. It takes a while. They have to experience that. And I'm sorry, yeah. but I'm not going to sacrifice $13 bumpers yep. in the river to help him learn that. Yep. He's going to learn that on his own with another dog backing him up or somebody yep. downstream that's going to be able to pick up that well, bird. Well, I guarantee here's how it's going to play out. Because <coughs> Mackinac gets a first. Ace usually – what will happen is Ace will see the second, and he knows where he can go in and get it. Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm thinking our one particular blind where we go in a lot. So what's going to happen is – Hondo may try and pull the second because Mac's going to mark it. Hondo may try, I'm probably but he's going to miss it. the two together you very much. You don't think so? No. So. Not until I have Hondo. Hondo needs all the attention, Yeah, basically. He needs reps. You know, you build a duck dog by getting him on ducks. That it, it, I, I'm, I'm looking yeah. for a meat dog. Mm-hmm. Back to that, or back to that yeah. comparison, I'm, I'm building a meat dog here. Yeah. I need a dog. Mackinac's a meat dog. Mm-hmm. Your dog's a meat dog. I'm not gonna hunt. I'm not gonna hunt test him, but I need yeah. him to perform under extreme situations. Yep. And I'm sorry, and I'm not putting I'm not putting guys that don't hunt rivers down, but western waterfowling in these fast western rivers, hard. it's hard on dogs. Yep, it demands a lot from dogs. Yep, we took back to the Ramsey Russell hunt once again last year. Prime example, we took his little char dog the first day, just her. I wasn't sure how Mac would, you know, uncut mail with, you know, okay, yeah. whatever. Let's just take her. And she did great. She wouldn't lose any birds. She did awesome. But yeah. there was a couple of times when that bird, she'd go to the mark and the bird's 10 yards down, yep. further down. And Ramsey'd whistle her and send, you know, change her yep. course. And then she'd see it and she was on it. Yeah. It's just getting used to those scenarios. Yep. Took Mackinac two years of, yep. of of that to get so like the river hunt we did with Brian Tucker yep. of High Mountain Seasonings. Mac made some exceptional retrieves that yep. day. None of them to me were like any big deal. Yep, because I was like, yeah, I expect him to do that. Yeah, the first year we hunted the river, and even halfway through the second, I was like, eh, he might get that bird. Yeah, you know now. <laughs> His, yeah. It's his body, not his mind, you know, because he's yeah. 10 years old. And Hondo will get to that point. Mm. It's just going to take repetition. Yeah. And so I'm looking forward this year to hunting Ace yeah. with the two of them together, mm. you know, and, and, you know, that emphasis is, is going to be on learning, 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 mm-hmm. learning, learning. And so it, it's definitely going to be interesting. Here's how it's going to play out. Like, just pull Mac out. What's going to happen is you're going to send Hondo, and you'll, you'll fight through a couple with him, like working the young dog. Like you'll, and he'll probably grab that first one, but I'll do cleanup. Yeah. But that's how it'll work. I mean, and that's easy enough. Fortunately, unfortunately, the spots that we primarily hunt on the river, they're safe. Yep. We hunt them because they're safe, yep. first of all. 
there's very little chance of getting a dog, yep. you know, in trouble. There are other places in on every Western River, especially this one, where I won't put a dog in the water. Yep. It's it. I, I look at it and like that's a death sentence. Yep. I put a dog in there, it's gone. I'm just not going to make it out. Yep. And so you have to be cognizant of where you're, of what you're doing. You got to walk 300 yards <coughs> down anywhere you plan on or putting more. a blind or and or hunt more. and walk, and you got to look for every one of those logs on where you're going to be and and maybe that's a good thing with aces you aces being picky about where he goes in i don't worry about him finding a log that i don't know is there because of that he's got he and mackinaw are similar in that regard where my first lab josie was a rocket ship just like hondo hondo's go you know he's already already taken me to the vet and get sewn up once (laughs) <laughs> it's going to happen multiple times yeah. over his career. I've never, knock on wood, I've never taken Mackinac yeah. to the vet for anything other than, like, shots and a point. He's never had accidents because he he's he slips into the water or he picks his, you know, he's got that sense yeah. of self-preservation. Once he's in the water, man, he's all go. Yeah. And he's buttery smooth. It's, it's funny to compare the two in the water. You watch him. And – Hondo's working a lot harder. Yeah. But Mackinac's right at the same speed, and he's just like gliding. He's like vel- black velvet in the water. And Hondo's, you know, going like crazy. And, and Mac's his, still, they're about the same speed. And I'm like, has That's Hondo figured funny. out how to how to keep his body low yet, or is oh, he yeah. still sticking his head up? No. Okay. His, his, the only thing sticking out of the water on him is his, is just his head in the back head. of his neck. And That's, it's, it's same with Mac. Mac uses his tail a lot more yeah. than Hondo does. Hondo hasn't figured out how to steer himself in the water. Hondo is still all brute force yeah. in, in the water. And Mackinac is, like, just graceful. And he'll yeah. use that big fat tail to turn, help him turn, and it's funny. That's one of my favorite things with young dogs is watching them reach that point because when they first start learning how to run in, they want to keep their head and neck, yeah. and sometimes they can get their chest. Well, so they're they doing can this. See. It's so they and can then, see. Yep. And then all, the, then all of a sudden something clicks, and they figure out how to turn into almost like a shark or an alligator. Exactly. They're just head across the water. But, yeah, it's going to be – it'll be an awesome – it'll be an awesome fall. Like I said, get to kick it off in Canada this next week. And then get back here. You'll be hunting mule deer. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, I don't worry about birds too much. I try to get some upland stuff in. But this year, I'm literally going to get back from Canada. It's going to be the middle of September mm-hmm. already. I've got, um, Ike has an elk tag. Yep. And I'm gonna. he's already asked me to help him with that. So that's going to be a couple days. Yep. And then I've obviously got magazine responsibilities yep. to continue. And blogs and everything else. Um, and then I've got a friend who drew him and he and his son drew an elk tag in an area that I'm very familiar yeah. with. And I told him, I'll help you. I'm probably not gonna be able to give him a week, but I'll be able to give him a yeah. couple days. And then I'm going to be a little selfish the end of the month. And I'm taking my family on archery elk camp. We're yeah. going to go set up the wall tent and we're going to go have a good time. Probably shoot some mountain grouse, you know, hunt hunt birds in the middle of the day, hunt elk in the morning and the evening, and just go have fun. And then October will get here, and October's a super busy month for the magazines. Yeah. You got a very fast turnaround. Yep. But by the time that deer – my deer tag ends at the end of Nove- – middle of November, it'll be time to get after the yep. ducks and the geese. And I probably be. honestly won't focus much on them until then. And it, I don't know. We're yeah. so blessed out here because we have – 
such a wide variety of hunting opportunities. Yes, it's insane. It is. We can start hunting. If you bow hunt antelope, you can start hunting October, August 15th. Yeah, August 15th. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to stop hunting until the middle of February. And if you're a predator guy mm-hmm. like Jeff Nimnick, mm-hmm. you can you go all winter. But here's the thing, though. I think our our hunting culture has changed with guys being more hardcore. They're figuring out wherever they live how to make it an entire year lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll say that it's probably younger guys that that have started doing that. I was one of them when I was younger. I learned how to extend my seasons, do more. We hunted everything. Mm -hmm. We hunted everything when I was young. Yep. And but I think there's more people doing that. It's yeah. not just I am a deer hunter or mm-hmm. I am, you know, it's not just the regional specialty anymore. And, and people are getting into the management. And I I think it's going to be a good thing, especially as as we start seeing more and more of these baby boomers age out. Mm-hmm. Like my dad's a baby boomer, Chris, the guy that we've hunted with quite a bit. He's a baby boomer <laughs> as well. And those guys are going to be hunting less over the course of time. My dad shot that shot his probably his last bull elk. Yep. Last December. And I'll I'll never forget it because I fretted over that hunt all I mean all fall. Because it's like that situation was those elk are either there or they're not. And yep. we're not gonna be able to go find more elk. Mm-hmm. They're either it's either gonna happen or it's it's not. it's not. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Worked out. And I'll never forget this, Scott. We he killed the bull. We walked over, stood around, we FaceTimed everybody, you know, because we had cell service and and FaceTimed the grandkids and uh-huh. video called my brother and it was super cool. We made it, we made yep. it, we made it a big deal. And we stood around for probably an hour. Yeah. Waited for the sun to come up over the horizon because it shot it at first light. Yep. Wait for the sun to come up over there, so we had good light for photos, and we, you know, we took a ton of pictures, and we just, we just tried to live in that moment. Yeah. Just soak that in, and we were walking back to the pickup. <clears throat> this close to a mile. You know, we didn't have to go very far in the morning, but by the time we got over the elk, and then we go, you know. Yep. Nice little walk, right? We had time to to visit and chat on the walk back. We're about halfway back, and. He stops, and he's just standing there kind of looking around, looking back at his bull laying there. And I said, everything all right? He's like, yeah, I'm just I'm just taking this all in. I was like, yeah, pretty cool experience. He goes, yeah, probably my last one. He's like, I'll probably never do this again. Yep. You know, he's at the point, elk, even, gen- even general easy-to-get elk tags in the yeah. western states, once, a, once every few years. For guys, you know, you look at yep. a general tag in Wyoming, you used to be able to draw it every other year in a lot of cases, cases every year. Now you're looking at every four years Yep. for if you're a non-resident. And yep. so it's a time thing. You know, he's 70 years, or he will be 70 years old this month, and he's just, his big game hunting is going to consist of whitetails. Yep. Pretty much antelope when he can pull a tag. Maybe another elk, but... He doesn't really have the desire either. You yeah. know, it took us four hours to break down that bull. Elk are just a and ton of work. They They're are huge. They are. And he's like, we got done, and he's like, I'm tired. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm like, all you've been doing is holding legs. What do you mean you're tired? <laughs> anyway, just, <clears throat> but 
that's where the bird hunting and the waterfowl hunting, the upland bird hunting and the waterfowl hunting are so, so key to yep. being able to extend your hunting career mm-hmm. and hunting season because they're long Yep, they're long seasons. Well, and if you stack them up like what we did, and and get a bunch of say a bunch of it frozen and then made into sausage, you can actually extend that meat life too. Right. You right. know, and it it doesn't feel it doesn't feel insignificant when you bring a season's worth of meat to the butcher to to get made into sticks or to let's, and and and. So let's you talk about that. that. Let's put this in perspective. High Mountain Seasoning is one of our sponsors. Yeah, and. I love everything that they do. Mm. I love everything that they do. But there again, getting back to time commitments, I don't have the time to process 400 pounds of goose breast. Yep. I don't. You know, and I say 400 pounds, think about it this way. Five Canada geese Mm -hmm. times two. Yep. You're going to get about a, a breast, a Canada breast pound, pound and yeah. a half, maybe two pounds. Yeah. And so you're looking at, out of five birds, you're looking at 10 pounds. Mm-hmm. Over the course of the season, yep. you kill 50 of those. Yep. Kill 50 geese. That's 100 yep. pounds of meat. Mm-hmm. You have your meat. I have mine. Yep. Everybody has their meat. We're eating on it throughout the season. I'm making goose jerky out of the high mountain kits. We're making recipes with yep. it. We're doing all different kinds of stuff with it. But it, over the course of a couple of years, you probably end up having some excess goose yep, left do. over in your freezer. And so what we, we have found that we like to do is we put it all together in a pool and we take it to a processor because yep. we don't have the time. Yep. And we have it made into, mm-hmm. into sticks, into you know sausage, into whatever – and it gets consumed. It gets doled yep. out around the office. It gets consumed. I took in 400 pounds mm-hmm. of assorted waterfowl. There's a little duck in there, but it was yep. mostly goose. Mm-hmm. And that's that's from all of our different freezers. Yep. You, what we have people. left, yeah, a bunch of people. Throw it all together, yep. pull it in, and go. That's an elk. Yeah. There, there are guys, especially like if, if you you can find it on social media or on YouTube, where you watch after snow goose season, you watch the stack of meat they get. Yes. The guys who really know what they're doing, and then especially when they get to the type of racks where they can just debreast them real mm-hmm. quick, mm-hmm. they they get a lot of meat out of that, and it's very right. intentional. They have processes <laughs> that that they can acquire with that, and you can get more if you look at it from a seasons perspective. You get more meat out of waterfowl than what you think. You that's do. one of the things I've heard big game guys like. We hardly get any meat. I'm like, but that's a point. Per you get bird. To go out, yeah, per bird. You get to go out more over the course of your season, and you acquire quite a bit. You know, it's like you only eat one chicken at a time. Exactly. You know, it's like there's no different than what you just went and bought at the store. Right, exactly. You know, that's what a limit is. It's one pallet of, say, chicken at, mm-hmm. at your store. And, so and I don't know about works. you, but – I have a hell of a lot more fun collecting geese and ducks than I do buying chicken at Costco. <laughs> yes, I agree. Ugh. Anyway, yeah, it's I, it's just one of those things that that's what I love about waterfowl. And if you uh, if you we've had this conversation before, everybody's got their thing. Yeah, yours is mule deer. For big game, I'm an elk guy. But if you told me tomorrow you can only hunt one thing, you're, you're that's it. You can hunt one animal, one type of hunting. It's going to be waterfowl for me. 
I'm gonna go. Oh, bye bye, big game. I'm gonna. I'm going to. I'll broaden it out. I'm. I would like to be able to add Upland Birds in there <laughs> <laughs> because I. I really enjoy. You'd be real, I real really enjoy hunting sage grouse. I really enjoy hunting pheasants. I really enjoy hunting mountain grouse. It's it. I, I like that upland stuff, especially where we live. That's the beginning of yeah. the fall. That's the beginning of the fall. And so I, I could say wing shooting, I guess. That's what yep. I do. That's what I do. I'd be like, nope, okay. Bye-bye, big game. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wing shoot. I hope I never have to make those decisions. <clears throat> no, I hope so either. I hope so too. I hope so too. And I, I don't think we ever will. It's just a hypothetical. but It's a fun hypothetical to talk about. <laughs> I, I mean, but – that's why that's why the management is so key. Like when the sage grouse film that we, you guys have been working tirelessly on, and you which know, drops to, to, uh, drops Saturday. Okay, Saturday. So maybe this episode today needs is to September. Drop quick. Today is September first. You're listening to this, and it's later in September. Go to the Wingman. Shameless yep. plug. Go to the Wingman yep. YouTube channel. It should be on the Eastman's YouTube channel as well. Yep. And look for our sage grouse short film. Um, it's about it's going to be about 17 20 minutes long somewhere in there guys what this film is about is everybody knows that sage grouse are in trouble they have been for a long time numbers have been declining grouse are cyclical they kind of go up and down but the overall trend of sage grouse mimics mirrors that of mule deer yep they're ever they're, they're declining we have a pretty good idea why but there's a crux to that if these birds get listed as they've been proposed on the ESA, the endangered species list, it will affect in pub- public land area the size of Texas. Yep. It'll be huge. It'll be massive. And what I mean by effect is there will be seasonal closures. When those mm-hmm. birds are breeding, you won't be able to go out there. Yep. When you, you may not even be able to hunt that ground for mule deer. You may not be able to fish the rivers that run through it. It's definitely going to affect the economy to the tune of billions of dollars for energy. And I don't care if it's green energy, wind, solar, or if it's petroleum production. It has an impact. It's going to affect ranching. It's going to affect all these different things. And what we wanted to do, what we thought we'd do with this film is we'd go do a stage grouse hunt. We'd talk about stage grouse conservation. Oh, cute little story, right? Yep. Wrong. Once we that was two years ago. This film's been two years in the making, and we started digging in, and it was like, holy smokes! Yep. There's predation involved. There's feral horses involved. Yep. There's human impact involved from, you know, obviously energy energy production and development to overgrazing to highways. You know, can't do anything about the highways that we've built, but it's impacted sage grouse over time. Yep. We, and, and I'm not saying any of those things is bad. That's not what we're talking about. One of the biggest things that we that we realized is wildfire, wildfire um, mitigation so, yeah. through cheatgrass mitigation. Cheatgrass is rampant across, mm-hmm. across the West. And... What it does is it increases the fuel load in the understory of sagebrush, so you get these wildfires that are sparked by whatever, usually light, yep. usually lightning, and it burns out the sagebrush and yeah. it doesn't recover. And then the only thing that comes back is more cheatgrass. Yep. And there's a whole big process there, including government agencies not seeing eye to eye, and so they don't 
they one of them has approval for to use a sage-grass treatment, and the other one doesn't. And it's like, what? I don't get it. There's yep. so much of this stuff that... So many layers. We can see the solution. We know what we need to do to fix the sage-grouse problem and probably have a pretty solid impact on mule deer numbers as well. Mm-hmm. It would. And we're not doing it. I, it <clears> it's <throat> an all-and. Like, if, if you took the... Horses are a huge piece of the equation. Huge. I grew up in Ravens. an area that had them. Yep. Horses were a huge piece of it. The the quality of habitat, like what you're talking about with the cheatgrass, that's a huge piece of the equation. And then on top of that, you throw in cyclical droughts, which happen. You yep. know, animal numbers go down when there's a drought. It's just the way that that works. <coughs> but you tie all these things together and you look at what human factors can we contribute, and it's an all Yes. And yes, it's not a do one singular piece. Right. You know, and so that's like, for instance, like with mule deer, it's you have to look at it from the perspective of, okay, they live at one area in the summer. They live at a completely different area in January and they migrated everywhere in between in the process, both directions, fall or late fall and spring. So if you look at that. Well, let's start with one thing. Let's start with the pinch points. Where can we get rid of those pinch points? You know, and then, and then you work your way backwards. But a lot of those pinch points and also a lot of the open land where the mule deer end up in the winter, guess what? That's also sage grouse country. Yes. I bet there's a lot of things tied together. There are. There, there's, there's, there's no doubt that the two are inextricably linked. Mm-hmm. You know, we're out there on the, the counting leks this spring – you know, I've got my, I got the Leupold's spotter all dialed up, you know, and I'm looking at these birds and looking for birds. Yep. It was a crap morning. It was blizzarding and cold, and but it was in the yep. exact same area that is the heart of Mule Deer Winter Range. Yep. And antelope and elk. You know, there's all kinds of stuff out there. But the point is that film drops this Saturday, so it's going to drop September 3rd. If you're listening to this later... Tune in. You'll find it. We've been yep. pr- we've been promoting it on our social media feeds, on Instagram and on Facebook. And couldn't be happier to have the partners involved that we've had. Yep. Eastman's has been, you know, obviously the parent company of Wingmen and has the support that Ike in particular yep. has thrown into this. And the, the indefatigable amount of enthusiastic work from Lindsay Wyon. Yeah. That woman has put in more time. I mean, you see me on camera and I'm like, <laughs> and, you know, and it's just a see, pretty face, right? Yeah, Todd? pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'm glad you caught that. Down. Yeah, exactly. No, I got it. Meet that backhanded compliment. Right. But Lindsay has done so much of the legwork for this. She's yeah, lined out she all has. the interviews. She's, she's drafted all the questions. She's, I mean, Unbelievable amount of work that goes into this. I am super proud of this film. The full-length film is going to air. It's going to be huge. Yeah. And it's going to air sometime mid-winter of 2023. Probably January, maybe February. And so stay tuned for that as well. You might be sitting in Michigan going, I don't care about sage-grouse. Well, Yes, you will, because if you like to come out west and recreate on public ground, yep. and I mean ride dirt bikes, hunt, trout fish, do whatever, f- photograph, mm-hmm. whatever it might be, you're going to be impacted by that. Not to mention the economic impact it's going to have nationwide yep. because of the impact it will have on energy 
production. Well, and I don't care if it's, like I said, fossil fuel production or green production. I, it doesn't matter. I hope we don't go there. I hope so, too. There's no need to. There's no reason to. I, I think we know how to fix it. We just – it's a manpower issue, yep. and we got to get it done. Yep. And so it's it's one of those things that – and here's the Time other thing. effort and zeros. I'm, I'm just hanging on to this. But here's the other thing. The listing of the sage-grouse at this point is not necessary. Yep. We have hundreds of thousands of these birds on the landscape still. Mm-hmm. It's not too late. It's not like, oh, we got to do it now. It's not like there's two of them left. Yeah. You know, we're not looking at an extinction event. We're looking at conserving and getting out front, being proactive and conserving what we have and building those numbers back up. The same with mule deer. Yep. It's not like we don't have lots of mule deer. We do. But historically, our numbers aren't where they were. You know, and there's lots of, there could be lots of reasons for that. You know, look at, all oh, the 1950s and 1960s were the height of mule deer, blah, 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 blah. Well, they were for sage-grouse, too. But look what we were doing at that time. Yeah. We were suppressing predators like it was, like our lives depended Including on ourselves. Look Including ourselves. Look at the exactly. number of men that were fighting. <coughs> you know, yes. they, they were hunting other things in other places. And our speed limits were 55 miles an hour. We didn't have vehicles that could go fast as they are today. You look at the numbers of dead mule deer on the roads. Yep. We talk about this all the time. You don't. This is opinion. You don't need mule deer doe tags. Yep. Because you can, you are con- right now we're controlling that mule deer take through roadkill. Yep. We're killing enough mule deer does every, and fawns every year on the highway. We don't need to be shooting them. Yep. We shouldn't be shooting them. Well, if you look at the number of mule deer, I wrote an article on this. I should be able to recall the numbers better. You can find it on Eastman's blog. But I talked about the number of mule deer that get hit on the highway in Wyoming. Yes. And it's a significant percentage. And so these overpass projects as well as these underpass projects plus high fences in the in the high traffic winter range areas. Funnel areas. It will make a huge difference. And I'd be willing to bet money that sage grouse would use those too. If, um, if they it's, transition. It's a little different because you're looking at something that can fly um, versus has to walk. But the idea behind of, of putting money behind conservation I bet projects. I they use those overpasses. Maybe. Maybe. It would be interesting to see. You'd really have to study it because what we yeah. saw, especially down in that part of the world, what we saw was fences being one of the largest barriers. Really? Yeah. Because they, they fly low to the ground. Mm-hmm. And – they don't see those barbed wire fences. I'd be curious because they the way they them. built those overpasses and sublet county is 100% conjecture. I have no idea. Right. But I'm also a, I'm also an optimist. So when you look at, like, the ones that you have in sublet county, they're giant overpasses. They're yards wide. Oh, yeah, they're big. And so, <coughs> like, they have the high fences on there. And because they are low flyers, they could still fly over them and use they could. them. They could. We're but also talking dead, about though? We're also talking about a bird yeah. versus a mammal. Yeah, you know they don't, they don't reason. They don't think like that. that. No, they just they just fly and they do what's ingrained in them. You know, it's it is what it is. But the biggest thing we can do is, you know, predator predator management, feral horse management, cheatgrass mitigation, and conserving habitat yep. through sagebrush restoration projects and mm-hmm. mesic area restoration projects. And I mean, we could go on. For days and days and days. Well, that's why we have a film about it. <clears throat> yep, absolutely. So check that film out. And while you're looking, snooping around, make sure that you're checking out Wingmen on Instagram. 
and on Facebook as well. We got a killer YouTube channel, guys. That it, I know from looking at the numbers, you're missing out on. So check that out as well. And I am stoked, man. I'm gonna go finish up, and Brandon and I tomorrow are gonna get together, and we're gonna load up the the Savages and the Federal and the Sitka and. I'd probably take a case of these because I don't want to <laughs> drive 20 hours without that. I tell you what. Well, we have some of the instant stuff uh, or the, the bags that's back. Yeah. Too. No, well, of it. Black Rifle Coffee has kind of revolutionized how I uh, drink coffee, to be honest. I mean, I look at between the instant, the ready to drink, and then the ground stuff, not ground, the whole bean coffee that I mm-hmm. prefer, it's like. I've always got coffee. Yep. Where before I was kind of, you know, drinking gas station coffee or doing yep. this. Although I will admit, going to Canada, I'm probably going to f- spend a fair amount of money in Tim Hortons. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that place. Oh, I oh, told Brandon, funny. I'm like, I'm going to buy a giant bag of donut holes. And every time we see one, we're going to stop and get coffee. <laughs> we won't need to, but it's just one of those things. It's like. When I go to the Midwest, the I, ha- I have to stop at Casey's. Enjoy the local fare. Yeah, exactly. Well, Scott, thank you for jumping on the podcast. We were all over the map today in this hour and 20 minutes. Um, but I enjoyed our conversation, like mm-hmm. always. And good luck on your mule deer hunt. Thank you. I'm looking forward to see what you bring, what you, what you drag out of those hills. <laughs> Llamas will drag it out. Mm. I won't. Llama mama. Llama drama. Sounds good. All right, guys. Thanks again for joining us on today's podcast. And thank you to our partners, Sitka, Savage, Onyx, Black Rifle Coffee, High Mountain, Leupold. You guys are the ones that make this possible that we, so we can bring this to you. And I really appreciate that very, very much. And until next time, we'll see you in the field.